welcome to a podcast series from the Arts and Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University Belfast, examining debates around constitutional futures on this island and these islands. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's. I'm pleased to be joined today by Martina Devlin and Tanya Ward. Martina Devlin is an author and journalist. She has written 11 books, ranging from a short story collection to historical novels, as well as two plays. Her latest work, Edith, a novel, is set during the War of Independence and focuses on Irish RM author Edith Somerville. Prizes include the Royal Society of Literature's V.S. Pritchett Prize and the Hennessy Literary Award, and she has been shortlisted three times for the Irish Book Awards. A former Fleet Street journalist, she writes a weekly current affairs column for the Irish Independent and has been named National Newspapers of Ireland Commentator of the Year. Martina is the first holder of a PhD in literary practice from Trinity College Dublin, where she is currently an adjunct lecturer in Irish literature. She presents the City of Books podcast sponsored by Dublin UNESCO City of Literature and supported by the Museum of Literature Ireland and regularly chairs both public discussion and literary events. She is a board member of Ireland's Future. Very welcome, Martina. Tanya Ward has, has been Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance since 2012. Previously, she worked with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties for eight years, including as Deputy Director. She's also worked on migration and refugee issues for government and NGOs, and she's lectured and published widely on human rights, and she's currently the chair of the National Advisory Council for Children and Young People. Thank you both so much for agreeing to contribute to this podcast series. I'm really delighted that you're here with us today. You're both very, very welcome indeed. Thank you. Now I turn to my f first question to, to really get us started in thinking about uh, the discussion. You, you've both noted uh, the intensification of interest in these constitutional discussions. It often seems that rarely a week goes by without a new project, initiative or comment piece emerging. just want to start by asking you both to, to share your thoughts on, on why you think, why you believe this is happening and Martina. Well, I think that people are starting to realize that this idea, unity, is bigger than any one individual. They're looking around and seeing there could be better outcomes. Um, there's a realization that unity doesn't have to be equalizing down, it can be equalizing up. Um, so that there are better outcomes for all. I guess there are things like the census results, which people are taking a great deal of interest in, and of course, Brexit as well, which are helping to drive the conversation. But in general, uh, perhaps we're saying that people don't only want to be defined as orange and green, unionist, nationalist and they're looking for positive ways forward. Uh, I, the other thing I'd say is that increasingly I see a sense of European identity. People identify as European, and that's also a, a way for the conversation to move forward. Thank you, Martina. Tanya, why is this debate intensifying? Yeah, well, look, I know, I know from our perspective in the children's rights movement, the, the biggest driver has been Brexit. And, and I know the day that the Brexit vote came out, we happened to have 
a child poverty conference with Eurochild, which is a, a European children's rights and uh, child protection organization. And uh, Leah Radker, who was Minister for Social Protection, was actually doing an opening speech together with the Minister for Children and Youth Affairs at that time, uh, Catherine Sapone. And I suppose, like like everyone, I, I probably should have picked a different day for the, the Child Poverty Conference, but it was you know, based on the availability of speakers, because it meant that I was up all night watching the results and uh, I, I was awake watching David Cameron resign. I suppose everyone was extremely worried and disturbed ar- arriving at the conference and I actually felt it was good to be with other people for the Brexit result. And, and people are actually talking about the surprise with the result, but they're also concerned about the future for the European Union and, and looking at the European Union as a really important way to promote peace ac- across Europe. That was one of the big things coming 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 through. But what was interesting for us was that um, Leo Radker arrived at the conference and we asked him what his read was. And he said, look, we're talking about now 20, with the discussion around United Ireland now, we've wiped 20 years off that now. It's it, it, it's come much closer now than we would have anticipated uh, and expected. And and to be honest, that, that that's one of the realities that's faced us in the Children's Rights Alliance. Uh, what we found was because of the Brexit vote, we, we realised it was going to have a significant effect on children and young people, particularly in Ireland, Northern Ireland, in England, in Wales and Scotland. Um, and it was something that we had to address uh, and I think we're still feeling the effects of Brexit you know today I know it's something we've done in the Children's Rights Alliance we've commissioned some research with the Children's Law Centre um, we've also we're running a consultation at the moment with children and young people uh, north and south because we really feel that the implications of Brexit have to be dealt with by our respective governments so children and young people shouldn't be losing out but unfortunately, they, they are. Um, and we have to deal with the other issues that have emerged. So I know in consultations, for example, in Northern Ireland and with young people before the Brexit result, it was what you would expect young people concerned about youth unemployment, concerned about mental health, concerned about getting uh, jobs, concerned about their futures. And then when the Brexit result happened and it resulted in a deterioration in, in community relations, you know, young people start talking about identity. And, and that's very worrying because you have a generation of young people that grew up um, and didn't experience violence in, in, in the same way. Um, and what you're seeing is that that deterioration is actually changing their experience and, and their life. And, and, and that has to be dealt with. And I suppose that's why we are. I, th- I think we, we're, we're more committed to working uh, with our colleagues uh, on the island because we, we do feel that we're going to have to address Brexit and its implications um, in a coordinated way. Thank you both uh, very much. And uh, uh, the B word Brexit there uh, appearing regularly and in, in those responses. You'll both know that the frequent references in this discussion to the Good Friday Agreement in terms of framing the discussions in the debate. But, but I often wonder in that discussion what, what people mean precisely when they say that. And I suppose I'd just be keen to get your thoughts on, on what you think is meant by that and what are the practical implications for that Good Friday Agreement framing for debates around uh, the constitutional future. Tanya? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it 
it means something different uh, to different groups of people, uh, to be quite honest. And one of the things I do think we need to be doing a bit more work on is actually understanding what the public understands it to be. And I mean the different publics, North and, and South. Um, there's been a lot of work done around political communication and around human rights by the Frameworks Institute. And they, what, what, what's very interesting from their perspective is you have to understand what the public uh, understands and hears when they hear a term. And I'm not sure we know what our different populations think when they hear what the Good Friday Agreement actually means. So I, I'd love to see some more work done about what the public thinks. And I say that because I think it's incredibly important for us as and in the political communication spectrum to understand when we're calling for something and we're calling for the implementation of it, to understand what the public understands by that. So if I give you an example, um, uh, if we go back to the Brexit vote, uh, a, a good bit of work was done by the Frameworks Institute after the vote, analysing the political campaigns um, of both sides, yes and, and, and against. Uh, and what they found was, of course, remaining in the European Union. And often remember when you run referendum campaigns and Ireland has a, a lot of experience of this, they are they're meant to be easier to to win. The change one is, is meant to be more difficult to sustain. And that's that's been the experience. Uh because you'll find uh, on both sides you'll get, you know, 40% of the of the vote, you know, they'll they'll they won't back the amendment that's being put forward. But one of the things that they discovered in the political communication piece was that you know the message being told to the public was it's bad for the economy but the public didn't understand what the economy meant um, and I think that's something we need to step back and, and think about I think for us I suppose as as, as academics as advocates um, for parliamentarians I think the agreement is incredibly important because it has the endorsement of so many people on the island of Ireland um, it has resulted on in peace on the island of Ireland and it has a plethora of solutions for dealing with particular problems that we experienced on the island of Ireland. So, you know, criminal justice reform, uh, laying the foundations for uh, human rights, um, laying out the foundations for uh, the human rights commissions and for our quality bodies to be established, but also laying a pathway for if there is a change in population or political viewpoints for referenda in, in, into the future. Now, I know, I suppose, the Good Friday Agreement's not, uh, you know, there are negatives associated with it. And I think one of those negatives is that it centres on the experience of, of two communities on, on the island of Ireland. And I know a lot of people have felt left out by that. But but with saying that, I think what's important about it is are the human rights promise, that the golden thread that runs through the Good Friday Agreement. I think if we stick to the promise within the Good Friday Agreement, I think it will help us uh, plot the pathway that's best for the people on the island of Ireland. Thank you, Tanya. Martina, the Good Friday Agreement framework, what do you think that means? Well, I think unfortunately for many people in the Republic, the Good Friday Agreement means they don't have to think about Northern Ireland anymore. It's all sorted and they can turn their attention to other things. You know, when bombs were going off, when people were dying, when uh, the area was on the news night after night, they couldn't look away. And in some ways, the Good Friday Agreement gives people permission to look away which isn't necessarily uh, advantageous by any means because, of course, the Good Friday Agreement hasn't been fully implemented. The Good Friday Agreement is many things, many wonderful things. 
It's also a promissory note for a border poll. And you could argue that that's being defaulted on. There's a don't mention the border poll attitude, which is harmful. It silences a natural aspiration, which people shouldn't have to apologize for. Parody of esteem. The kind of language we hear about, I'm thinking in particular of parody of esteem, being able to identify as British, Irish, both, neither. This was groundbreaking. You know, it is an extraordinary international treaty. But the parody of esteem part, for example, is not being delivered on. Uh, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis, has said that he won't introduce legislation on an Irish language act, despite promising that he would by a certain date. This is an act of bad faith, and it's by no means the only one in relation to the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, Brandon Lewis also talked about breaching international law in a limited and specific way. And this is so disrespectful to an international treaty. Um, there's a line in the Good Friday Agreement, it's the firm will of the Irish nation in harmony and friendship to unite all the people who share the territory of the island of Ireland in all the diversity of their identities and traditions. That's a wonderful line. But there is a voodoo banging drum, you know, orange and green. And I think what we're seeing now with the debate is that it's an attempt to set aside this orange and green set of binaries, you know, and think about whether there can be a new relationship which colours every aspect of a potential new state, no part left untouched, you know, like adding dye to water to colour it. And that's something that can be worked towards with the help of the Good Friday Agreement. But what I would say is this, it's not something that's just going to happen of its own accord. It's not some riddle which a scientist of the future will solve like a cure for the common cold. There <coughs> needs to be work done on it. Thank you both very much. And just to carry forward that thought about the promises of the agreement and promissory note, you'll know that you know one of the implications of this intensification of interest is that there's almost a repetitive uh, language of preparation and planning that is dominating much of the debate. There's a lot of focus on preparation and planning for all constitutional eventualities. But the question I want to ask now is, you know, in your view, is enough really being done? Having said all that, who who should be leading some of these conversations? And I suppose most significantly, perhaps at the moment, what role civil society? might play in the discussions. And I suppose to raise the question, do you sense uh, any nervousness in civil society and the wider community and voluntary sector and just out there about entering this constitutional space, Martina? I don't sense too much nervousness among civil society. I sense a great deal of interest in some areas and absolutely no interest in others. Um, Sometimes it's geographical. The closer you are to the border region, the more interested you are because it affects your daily life. Um, the scaffolding of this proposed new state, if indeed, you know, as a result of a referendum north and south of the border, people vote for this, the scaffolding needs to be put together by government intervention. 
And for that, you need preparation and planning. And the Irish government should be leading this. We do need political involvement, um, partly because an awful lot of research needs to be done. Stats need to be produced so that when and if people vote, they do it in the knowledge of what they're voting for. That's the lesson we've learned from Brexit. And some of the information is hard to come by. Universities are doing a lot of work, research, doing research in um, health outcomes, education and so on. Civil society does have a role to play. I'm on the board of Ireland's future. And the reason I am is because I believe that we need as committed citizens to be involved in what could be the most momentous decision of our lives. Um, we can't leave everything to politicians because politicians often uh, think in terms of the next election and make short-term decisions. And this is anything but a short-term decision. Uh, it's such an important one. So a great deal of planning is necessary. There, there needs to be a lot more research. There needs to be funding provided for it. And I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but I think what you need right now is not just one citizens' assembly, but a series of them. Thank you, Martina. Tanya, has enough been done at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I I kind of understand some of the concern and and fear about movement because um, I I think everyone looks to Brexit and looks at the the lack of preparation work done by the UK government, and really nobody wants to be in in that position. Uh, I think the other thing that politicians are possibly very cognizant of is that they you know they've lost you know plenty of referendums before. And they, they are well aware that often when referendums take place, that the people, when they're voting, they will actually vote sometimes. Usually what's happening is they're voting on what they think of the government of the day and not necessarily uh, on the issue. So you'll see in a lot of referendums that have happened in, in, in recent times, government being very careful or politicians being very careful not to be seen to be leading the uh, discussions and debates. So you see that around the repeal the eighth amendments around uh, providing access to abortion in Ireland. You see that particularly around uh, marriage equality as well. And they would have known that from, you know, analysing referendums that they had lost in the past. And they would have known that um, uh, just from, you know, from seeing success and what who, who was successful in, in bringing the referendum across. So I think all of those things are, are playing themselves out in the background. But um, like Martina said, there's huge amounts of research that needs to be conducted and some of that work is being carried out uh, as we speak. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, I think, at civil society level as well, to be to be quite honest. Um, there are some actors very interested in the civil society point of view and there are others yet to be activated. I suppose what I'd love to see is a much more, I suppose, dynamic interactions happening between the human rights movements in, in North and South. I mean, one of the things I've, I've kind of noticed is that you actually don't get a lot of uh, movement in employees, for example. And you imagine you would do um, of people working uh, in Belfast or working in Dublin or Galway or Cork. There's human rights opportunities uh, throughout the island, but you don't necessarily see a lot of that movement. Uh, the movement often takes place, you know, it's London that they're going to or uh, they're might be going to Geneva. So I, I think we need to do a lot of work as as a national, as, as movements on the island 
to create opportunities for people to work north and south. I think that will make a, a huge difference to the quality of the work that we do. And I also think um, there's going to be a need for the big representative organisations to really stand forward and to work with people on what kind of solutions they want to see happen. I mean, I, I step back and as a political activist, I'm always looking for opportunities to promote the rights of children and young people. And any discussions that we're having at this moment around Brexit or Shared Ireland are opportunities to, to really address some critical issues for young people north and south. Um, access to mental health services, critically difficult for, for children and young people, poverty, um, exploitation by young people, by, by criminal gangs, uh, youth unemployment, you know, these are the things we need to be talking about and, and coming up with solutions. And I think discussions around the Shared Ireland are opportunities to work together uh, to address those issues. But I do think, I suppose, we as, as sectoral organisations need to be interacting more north and south and trying to use those opportunities to you know, encourage our governments to actually deliver change that's going to make a big difference to children and young people on the island of Ireland. Thank you both very much. And this really follows on from that discussion. You'll have heard the calls for Citizens Assembly or even more than one have already been mentioned there. Talk of a minister, perhaps for reunification, a joint Oireachtas committee, among many other things. I suppose the question I want to raise is, you know, what would be useful? Is there anything else missing in the current list of proposals? And I suppose what you yourself would prioritise, you know, what, what, are, what are the priorities at the moment? I suppose a follow-on question just to, to fold that into this is how much might actually be possible in advance of referendums and what actually might happen afterwards? Uh, Tanya? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I know from the kind of international research that the more engaged that people are in these kinds of questions, the more likely you are to deliver for them in the long term. Um, that we had a referendum on uh, on children's rights in in 2012, and I have to say the amendment was quite weak. That was put to the people, and I think possibly what happened was, you know, the you know, an, a succession of events in Ireland triggered the need for this referendum, but the movement might not have been necessarily ready for a referendum. Uh, so what I mean by that was. We had the Ryan report that came out in in, uh, in 2009 and really showing the devastating picture of how children and young people were treated in uh, industrial schools and what, when they were harmed, um, uh, what you found was these institutions put the interests of their staff ahead of the interests of children. So really pointing to something very seriously wrong um, about Ireland. And I suppose there was another case called the Baby Anne case where the Supreme Court made a judgment to take a child, move a child from her prospective adoptive parents. Now, there was problems with the placement, et cetera, and the consent of the, the biological mother. But they made a decision uh, two years into the placement to move that child um, back to the biological mother based on uh, the definition of the family in the constitution and that it couldn't be interfered with. And that was against the backdrop of a lot of research that showed there were serious problems with potentially moving a child that happened two years with their, with their, their prospective uh, parents. But what you found was an amendment was put to the Irish people that was weak. And it was weak because there wasn't really, uh, you know, the, the Irish government probably at that time 
you know, wasn't keen on having more litigation uh, in relation particularly to children and youth services that it wasn't in a position to deliver upon. So an amendment is put to the people to vote to vote for. Um, but what you find is in countries where there's been a lot more engagement with the general public on an amendment, it's possible to put, to put a much more radical amendment that can deliver a lot more change for uh, the people um, in that country. So I'm thinking here of Finland um, had a constitutional referenda um, and it was I think it was a, a government that was more to the right of centre that actually launched that referendum um, and it delivered a great result. Whereas New Zealand had an opportunity for a bill of rights but really the amendment that was put to the people was you know it was quite weak in character so I do think um, we need a huge amount of engagement with the public if we are going to really get you know really significant change uh, for children and young people but the other thing I think is really important is the involvement of children and young people in any of these discussions. You know, from the very outset, it's very easy to pull together reference groups of young people to actually get their views on what governments should be thinking about, what are the what are the problems that need to be resolved, what are the solutions. Uh, some of that work happened around Brexit. It was, it was really successful and it really did shape how the Irish government approached Brexit when it came to uh, human, human rights. But what I'm also really concerned about is, I suppose, and the longer in my job, the more I'm convinced of this, is we actually have to have a bigger, bigger political franchise for young people on the island of Ireland. Um, each year when I look at the budget, you know, and the decisions that government makes, you know, I'm really reminded that they make very good decisions when it comes to older people. Um, you know, they're less likely, particularly two-person households, to be exposed to poverty. And I think those measures that they introduce for older people are right and fair and just, and that's exactly what we should be doing. But I often think if we gave young people the, the chance to vote in elections, how that would actually change how the government treats them and sees them. So what I'd love to see happen, you know, is the right to vote extended to 16 and 17 year olds. I know in Scotland, they uh, 16 and 17 year olds had the right to vote. And it really led to huge levels of engagement around that independence referendum. I think 75 percent of young people actually participated in that referendum. And I think that's something that we need to think about here. We need to be preparing the ground for more political engagement by children and young people and putting measures in place that are really going to make a difference to them in the long term. Thank you, Tanya. Martina, what would you prioritise and, and how much might be possible in advance of these referendums happening? Okay, well, I think it's important to say that this is a movement in many ways and movements do start from the bottom up, from civil society and work up towards governments. Um, we, we've seen that with every recent referendum in the Republic. You know, it has been driven by activism and by concerned citizens, um, whether it, it's been for abortion rights, whether it's been for marriage equality. So uh, there is work that civil society can, must and is doing. It can always be extended. Uh, I see the trade union movement is involved. Uh, it has a key role to play because, of course, a number of the trade unions have uh, a presence on both sides of the border. Uh, the other key thing for me would be unionism. Um I think that there's a reluctance among unionism, political unionism, to engage in the conversation. But you are seeing 
members of the unionist community engage from other walks of life. And I would say that that's that really needs to be encouraged. Um, this is also where a citizens' assembly would come in. Um, you may not get political unionism involved, but you would certainly get civil society unionism involved, I think, if you made the correct approach. And the kinds of questions that need to be teased out would be how to ensure a seamless transition if unity was voted for on both parts of the island, and how to ensure moderate unionist buy-in. So we need to be thinking about the kinds of protections that would be there for unionist and British identity. I think this is really important and I'm not sure that enough attention has been given to it. You get a certain amount of knee-jerk, oh I'd never give up the tricolour, of course we can't change the national anthem, which is just plain disrespectful to people from the unionist community. Um, we have to understand that the tricolour to a good many members of the unionist community represents IRA funerals and they see it as somehow triumphalist and we need to we need to walk a mile in other people's shoes citizens assemblies can help us to do this and we also need to start thinking about if uh there was a, a border poll in favour of unity. You know, would people envisage an interim period or would there be other arrangements? These are all things that we, we need to think about. And then what role can the new Irish play in shaping change? It's my view that we incline towards too exclusive a definition of Irish identity and we need to expand that. We need to be conscious that there are increasing numbers of people in Ireland on both sides of the border who weren't born there. So uh, a lot of work to be done and citizens' assemblies are the way to start that work. Thank you both very much. And this follows on really from some themes of the responses there. And it's it's been interesting to note the extent to which the conversation has become a conversation about a new Ireland. And I'm always intrigued by that language as to what precisely people mean by the new component of, 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 of that sort of formulation. And in one area, you know, particularly in the in sort of legal domain, but it's been quite interesting to see people immediately going towards you know, talk of a new constitution and new constitutional arrangements. And I just wonder your own thoughts on that. Do you think there should be a new constitution in a united Ireland? And if you do, how, how would you see this happening, Martina? Well, a written constitution is undoubtedly useful. And the fact that citizens vote uh, in a referendum for change gives citizens a sense of investment in that constitution. But I sometimes think that we talk about constitutional change too easily. I mean, for example, during the financial crash in Ireland, people kept saying, oh, we need a new constitution. And there was talk of putting all sorts of rights into that constitution, for example, the right to housing. Now, I'm not saying for one minute that there shouldn't be a right to housing. I believe there should. But putting it into the constitution doesn't mean that houses will suddenly appear. You know, you need 
uh, governments to invest in building more. So, uh, you know, a new constitution isn't the answer to everything. That said, the constitution does have to change to take account of unionist identity. We do need to think a bit harder about Irishness and how to make it inclusive uh, and how to accept that British identity has validity as well. Um, There's something else that can be got across. There's this idea within British nationalism in particular, and it's something that some in unionism lean towards, the idea that something shared is something lost. It's not. It's something gained. And I think this is uh, an area that we can go into and tease out. But I mean, look, in terms of work that needs to be done, um, health, we have, you know, the North has the NHS, the South has the HSC. We need to think about what people from the North, um, you know, how to, um, sorry, we need to think about how to bring these two together. We need to think about life expectancies, how they can be increased. We need to think about social welfare, different rates in the two jurisdictions, how you can um, amalgamate them. We need to think about an island-wide education system. We need to think about the currency, you know, what currency would there be? Would there be conversion to the euro? Would this have a negative impact on savings and pensions. Um, There's an awful lot of work to be done. And I'm not convinced that enough of it is being done yet. Um, The Constitution, I mean, the Constitution won't solve all our problems. It is a wonderful framework. But to talk about constitutional change at this stage, I think, is premature. Thank you, Martina. Tanya, a new constitution for United Ireland? Question mark? Yeah, yeah. question mark, question mark, question yeah. mark. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I think Martina said it's unclear what the future is going to look like and, and whether a constitution is something that we uh, need to introduce. So, I mean, certainly one of the, the things I, I will be um, concerned about is that any time, if you look at government has been looking at constitutional change in the last kind of couple of decades it's been very careful about what it's put in the constitution so it doesn't deliver on socioeconomic rights and that there's some of the key issues of actually facing uh, people north and south I, 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 saying that of course there any time that you have political change it's an opportunity to secure some radical change for the people that you're representing so obviously i'd be stepping back and looking at if there's any kind of legal changes afoot making sure that the rights of children and young people can be strengthened and enhanced um in whatever document is put to the people you know th- there's a lot to think about though you know, we, we, we have a constitution uh, from 1937 uh, in Ireland and there's, you know, a lot of interpretation, banks of interpretation linked to those different um, articles. So you have to think about, you know, have some foresight when you do do a new constitution or 
legal arrangements, how are they going to be interpreted into the future? And that's where the real boring work needs to be done by constitutional lawyers like yourself and um, academics looking at different forms of, of, of legal change. But I suppose one of the things it is worthwhile actually thinking about is, you know, the, the Good Friday Agreement talked about a charter of rights on the island of Ireland. And I remember when I uh, started with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, one of the first things I got to do was a submission, you know, on what should the Charter on the Rights of the Island of Ireland look like. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it is interesting, I suppose, that no work has really progressed. And I know it's because of the, the Bill of Rights, but I just wonder, is it worth having discussions about a Charter of Rights on the Island of Ireland? Um, what could that do to enhance the experience of children and young people on the island of Ireland? What could it do to enhance people experiencing unemployment and, and poverty? Thank you both very much and links in as well to the earlier discussion, the Good Friday Agreement and, and, and implementation of it too. I'm just going to, you'll be glad to hear our last couple of questions now. And you've used the language of, of sharing and you'll both know that um, the Irish government is using the current Irish government, the framing of a shared island. I just wonder what your view is of the various shared island initiatives that have been launched by the Irish government. Do you find it a helpful framework for considering relationships uh, on this island? Tanya? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's been really useful seeing some of the research that's come, come from the Shared Ireland Initiative and um, I suppose it, it, they are asking, you know, really important questions. I'm thinking of the one around healthcare, for example. So um, people are aware, obviously, in the South that there's an NHS and they're always aware about what you can get in the NHS and uh, provides access to lots of different services that aren't free um, in, the, in, in the Republic. And uh, that research, I think, that came out before Christmas was, was useful because it pointed to the fact that, uh, you know, the, the the point of access isn't free and that does mean in the south that people delay going to the GP and access to the free GP care is really important but at the same time it actually pointed out that the same issues are actually affecting both health services in terms of waiting lists and a lack of uh, staff and one of the, the critical problems that we're facing in Ireland particularly when it comes to services for children and young people is that there isn't the staff or the workforce there to provide the service necessary and that's particularly affecting uh, people with disabilities uh, we, you know one in four children will have a disability at some point in their life and you can be sure unless their parents pay for it they'll be on a very long waiting list um, trying to access services so I think though that those pieces of research are, are really important and then the other side, I think, you know, there's been a big focus on economy and, and trade. And to be honest, that that is really important, I think, for the island of Ireland. I mean, one of the things that um, Ireland has been really successful at is, is developing a very strong economy. It has unfortunately developed significant levels of inequality alongside that that needs to be addressed. But we know, I suppose, in countries that uh, we have very strong trade, very strong economic ties, that you're more likely to have peaceful uh, relations. And that, that's very important. Um, there's been a lot of public events that are kind of set pieces, I think, uh, that have been organised to, to bring different stakeholders together. You know, it's, it's an important, I suppose, first step. But where I feel there could there could be better work taking place is in relation to human rights. And uh, to be quite honest, I, I think we shouldn't be shying away from discussions about, about human rights on, on a shared island. And there hasn't been sufficient focus from, from my perspective. And I would like to see a greater focus 
really on dialogue between children and young people uh, north and, and south as well. There's been some involvement uh, of that sector, but not not extensive enough. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a really rich and broad movement, civil society movement for children and young people, um, and they just haven't been engaged sufficiently in these discussions. And I think if they if they were engaged, I think we would we're more likely to see uh, better, more change happening, uh, more uh, more solidarity north and south, and then people being more effective at using the levers of change to deliver effectively for children and young people. Thank you, Tanya. Martina, the, the shared island framework, how helpful is it? I think it's been underwhelming so far. It hasn't led to any noticeable change in Irish government policy. It hasn't resulted in a clear outline about how a united Ireland, if it were voted for, would work. It's too much of a, a talking shop. It's woolly. I mean, there's money there for projects um, that's worthwhile. Um, but sometimes they were absorbed from, they were moved from the Department of Foreign Affairs to the Department of the Taoiseach. Um, so it's not always new money. I think the real problem is it hasn't led to change. The Irish government isn't advocating unity, even though the British government uh, feels free to advocate uh, unionism. You know, um, the shared island unit is really a case of steady as she goes. And there's an awful lot of St. Augustine, you know, make me make me good, but not just yet. And what I think is that when in doubt, we should always choose change. I There's a, a German scientist, Lichtenberg, who said, I cannot say whether things will get better if we change. What I can say is that they must change if they're to get better. So I think that generally there is an acceptance that partition has stunted opportunities, whether for prosperity, whether for human rights, whether for health outcomes. Um, and people do realize that, but there is a there is a a built-in tilt towards the status quo. Um, and I think that that's problematic. There's also something else that bothers me about the shared island unit in its current incarnation and this idea of a shared island. There's a precondition set, which is that, oh, we must have reconciliation if we're to make any progress. Not for one moment am I saying we don't need reconciliation. Reconciliation is really important. But the idea that you can't have a border pole uh, before reconciliation happens, this unrealistically high standard of reconciliation, provides us neat veto for those who don't want it to happen at all, who don't want unity. So by all means, we can and should strive for reconciliation in the here and now, and we can make progress in many key respects we already have. But I don't believe that reconciliation can be fully achieved under the current constitutional setup, i.e. partition. Um, now, perhaps there are people who don't believe that reconciliation can be achieved in a united Ireland. That's also a legitimate view. But, you know, the only way you'll find this out really is, is to go for the border polls. Um, I think that reconciliation can be and is being achieved between many individuals and groups. But that's a far cry from Ireland as a whole 
achieving reconciliation, though it's progress. Um, I, I think that a lot of Southern-based commentators and politicians are using this, it's not the right timeline, which I also associate with the shared island unit, um, To so not the right time to even discuss unity in case it offends unionists. And arguably that's a pattern, you know, it's a very paternal attitude. Um, you know, it 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 would put forward the case that it understands them, if you like, but it's actually treating unionism like some kind of unstable chemical element that'll blow with the slightest disturbance. That's patronizing. I mean, to me, that's the very essence of sectarianism. Um, ha have the conversation, do the groundwork, give people their say. Thank you very much, Marty. You'll be glad to hear that this is the final uh, question, and it's a fairly unfair exercise in prediction. But but what? But why not ask it? There's a lot of discussion of the decade ahead. In fact, it's one of the more notable themes in the debate that that we're heading towards uh, these referendums in the decade ahead. And I just wondered if if we were having this discussion in 2030. Um, what do you believe, based on what we know now, might have changed uh, by then? What would be different if we were having this discussion in 2030? Martina? Hmm. <laughs> well, I think by 2030, you'd have had the referendum uh, preceded by a number of citizen assemblies. And the closer to 2030, that referendum in the North, that referendum in the Republic happens, um, the more likely it is that unity will be voted for. And that's on the basis of demographics, which are undoubtedly changing. Um, I think as well that, OK, the census results this year should confirm that a majority of people who might be described as cultural Catholics, which I don't mean that they necessarily you know, go to church every Sunday, uh, there will be a majority of them. And we're treated regularly to well-worn statements that a Catholic majority doesn't mean an automatic United Ireland. Absolutely true, it doesn't. But I think what we have to remember is that a Catholic majority doesn't possess a default reflexive tilt towards the pro-unionist pro-union position that many in unionism have. So by definition, they're open to persuasion. The more pronounced that majority becomes in future years, the more the constitutional question becomes a debate of the pros and cons, how to get the best possible results for everyone as regards health, education, job opportunities, prospects for the best possible outcome in life, which is what the debate should always be rather than ideology. So yes, the closer to 2030, I would say the more likely there will be a yes vote. Thank you, Martina. Tanya, 2030. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose Martina has paved the way there for if there is a referendum and what that might look like. And I suppose the, the change in dem demographic changes. I, I thought I might comment on maybe the environment surrounding those potential changes and, and just something 
if you think about 2030, that really strikes me as the environment and the environmental degradation. And I, I think in our discussions around the Shard Island, we need to be really thinking about that and about the kind of solutions we need to be introducing uh, north and south to protect children and young people. Um, look, they, they're the ones that will have will, will pay uh, most, to be quite honest. Uh, and they're the ones, if you, I, I was very recently at the uh, Don and Oak, which is the kind of Irish Parliament for young people, and they are deeply concerned, as you would expect, about the future when it comes to the environment. But uh, you know, a lot of the Irish public will will switch off around discussions of the environment, and it's not that they can't, don't care; it's that they, they they can't deal with it because of what's going to happen, the cascade of events that's ahead of us. It's very hard to listen to, and what what people need, if you want to engage them, that you need a, a solution focused focused debate. Uh, people need to hear it's possible to change things, and this is how we can do it together. Um, I, I think that's going to be very important in, in these discussions. In, in the backdrop, of course, there's huge levels of political instability. I mean, I'm thinking about Scotland and the potential referendum that will uh, take place. Presumably it will happen before uh, 2030. And the way Boris Johnson's government behaves is, is going to you know, play a big role in relation to that. I know that there's a move to try and decentralise power, uh, uh, to try and stop an independence movement, movement gathering steam in, in Scotland, but it's not something that Boris himself is particularly interested in. And he he's, he's demonstrated his really poor, he's a great, obviously, campaigner, he's able to win elections, but he's very poor at governance um, and as and, and a, a top of, of government. So I'd be, I'd be kind of concerned Concerned about the backdrop and, and, and what we're, we're, we're looking at ac across the water. Um, the other thing, I suppose, for me is, and I, I'm thinking closer to home, is about what's happening for young people in, in the next eight years. You know, I was I was really struck by some of the research that came out recently around university students um, and saying in the north that they were going to leave because of community relations and that they saw no future for themselves. And you know, there was a lot of flight that happened during the troubles from people in, in, in Northern Ireland. And, and and that is very worrying because it leads to a brain drain uh, when your young people don't stay um, and they don't find a way to, you don't engage them in political solutions. And I think there's a real need now to really go down deep go and listen to young people and also for political leaders to think about their behaviour and about the impact that it's having more seismically on uh, children and young people in, in their respective communities. Um, Martina talked there about a majoritarian Catholic population that is, is emerging in the north and something that really strikes me you know when you hear the current debates on people being singled out for being in leadership positions and doing well from an education standpoint and things like that, I often think, you know, that's not how you you win an argument, you know, uh, with that Catholic majority. You need to sell why being part of the union is is better for um, for for children and young people and your community. And I wonder, is there opportunities there in terms of rights and entitlements? Are there improvements that could be made as part of that discussion and debate? I think that's where the debates are going to flow um, into the future. But I do hope, to be honest with you, uh, within the next eight years, there is some level of improvement when it comes to child poverty rates. We do see better levels of youth unemployment, that people see better opportunities for themselves as well, and that there's some improvement in access to services for children and young people. All of that is really fundamental as we go forward. Well, thank you both very, very much. We've reached the end of the questions and the episode. I just want to thank Martina and Tanya for 
their participation. I really, really enjoyed discussing with you and the conversation today. Just want to wish you all uh, the very best with your ongoing and absolutely vital work. And just to thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you.